What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. And a lot on our program today. Lisa Graves is going to be with us here talking about how the Senate Judiciary Committee really must investigate Brett Kavanaugh and his lies and his past, frankly, that took him to the Supreme Court. And we'll get to all these things today and a lot more of the news. Syria, government shutdown, is Trump melting down and how dangerous does that make him and the administration? All these things as we continue on through the program. But first, I'm really happy to have with us the uh, author, lecturer, activist, uh, former candidate for for Congress in California, Marianne Williamson. Her website, Marianne4foramerica.com. And uh, you can tweet her at Mar Williamson, M-A-R Williamson. Marianne, welcome back to the program. (laughs) Thank you, Tom. Always great to be with you. I understand that you have uh, launched an exploratory committee to consider running for president of the United States. Tell us about that. Well, I have a big announcement that I'm going to make in Los Angeles on January 28th. I feel I'm uniquely qualified to make a moral argument uh, for the deeply democratic and human universal values that run counter to an amoral and basically sociopathic economic system which is tyrannizing our society. And I think if all we do is treat that as a political battle, then even if you win a battle here or a battle there, there will always be more battles. I think we need to win the same philosophical and even moral debate that was waged at the founding of our country. And that has to do with advocacy for we the people, for all people created equal, all people with inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The government is instituted among men to protect those rights as opposed to the economic rights of a basically few multinational corporate entities whose only sense of economic uh, and ethical responsibility is the fiduciary responsibility to its own stockholders. So you're taking this much larger than the frame that many of the presumed candidates for president are using, which is, I'm not Trump, or we're going to stop Trump, or we're going to stop the Republicans. You're talking about, you're talking like Franklin Roosevelt here, like fundamentally changing the frame, the system of governance itself. The forces that oppose deep democracy at this time don't care if Trump falls down. They have so many people standing behind that. Uh, So just Trump, and at this point, who knows if Trump will even be the candidate in 2020. 
And whoever it is, whether it's Trump or anyone else, if all we do is defeat electorally that person, then they'll be back in 22. They'll be back in 24. We need to override that through a genuine renaissance of American political and moral consciousness that will create the kind of political gestalt we need. Something is going on here that is much deeper than any one candidate or any one set of candidates. What is going on here is a full-scale assault on the democratic values that are at the core of, of the United States. It's already taken us to a point where we're not really functioning as a democracy. We're functioning as an oligarchy. We have a system of legalized bribery uh, where our government is, is, is basically uh, more a servant to, to a, a, an economic system and the trickle-down economics, which supposedly was going to lift all boats and instead has decimated the American middle class and has turned the vast majority of American people into little more than serfs to this system. This is a form of tyranny here. This is a this is a reversion to an aristocratic archetype. So it's a much bigger debate than just, you know, let's, let's defeat one particular candidate. And I think that the political establishment on both left and right was gobsmacked by B Donald Trump because the establishment forces were not addressing the economic despair, the chronic economic despair that was being experienced by millions and millions and millions of Americans. That's how blind that system has become. I believe that we need a, a much more expanded sense of possibility, a much more expanded, much deeper sense of argument, what the argument really is. It's democracy versus aristocracy. That's bigger than just winning against one candidate. On this program, just a few years ago, uh, President Jimmy Carter said that because of Citizens United, we have become an oligarchy with unlimited political bribery. That, that's pretty close to an exact quote. You're talking like President Carter. That, that's, that's good. Well, I, that's yeah. a compliment. And like Tom Hartman, if I may say so. Well, yeah, I, I, you're echoing many of my themes, absolutely. And I think this is extraordinary. And I'm so pleased to hear a possible candidate for president of the United States actually talking about these large structural issues uh, that have been brought to us in, in many cases by the Supreme Court with the Buckley decision in 76, Citizens United in 2013, and going all the way back to the 1880s, and the issues of corporate power and oligarchy, essentially. How do you communicate that? How do you boil that down to a, essentially a bumper sticker? How do you communicate that to the kind of people who watch Fox News or listen to right-wing hate radio, who really need things in simple, straightforward, digestible form that doesn't involve words of more than two syllables? Only a corrupt political system tries to take truth and reduce it to a bumper sticker. Uh, we're not going to navigate these times. We're not going to make it through this democratic crisis in our country today without some deep thinking. And the kind of people who come from a right-wing perspective and only watch Fox News, there's a large group of those people that's going to vote for Donald Trump or Donald Trump's successor, no matter what. We didn't lose the 2016 election just because of them. We also lost because of a lot of people who didn't vote, a lot of people who voted third party, etc. I personally think that there are a lot of people who voted for Trump, who are disturbed, and who are open, at least open to hear a compelling argument for something different. We have one political party that's been, you know, bought into. It's bought into hook, line, and sinker, this whole economic theory of, you know, let market forces really rather than democracy govern our society. But we have another major party that 
wrings its hands, you know, like the mother who, who lets the father beat up on the kids, and she just feels so terrible about it, but she's standing in the hall rather than stopping him. And that other political party has sought to address the pain on the periphery, but it is not addressing the fundamental forces that make all that pain inevitable. That has been the legion of the soul of the Democratic Party, and only if that soulfulness and real moral conviction is brought back to the Democratic Party will it have the kind of win that really stands for something more than we got it two years, we got it for another four years. And that's what I want to help articulate. And I don't think you need to dumb it down for anybody. This idea of dumbing down your message so that you get more people to agree with you, that's not how social change operates. Social change operates not on the horizontal, but on the vertical. Just say what you really think. Say it with conviction. Conviction is a force multiplier. You know, there's a lot of coastal arrogance in this country, like people in, you know, on the coast who think, well, I believe this, but how are you going to convince people in Nebraska? Then I go to Nebraska, and people in Nebraska are smart, too. Mm. So I think we need, I don't think we need to dumb anything down. I think we need to up-level the intelligence of our conversation. That's great. I, yeah, that's brilliant. But this should have been my first question, just to make it very, very clear. You're talking about if you decide to run for president, you'll be running as a Democrat in the Democratic primary. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And presumably, then, you're not just talking about change in America. You're also talking, and, and I just heard you, you mention this, but I, if you'd like to elaborate on it, with change in the Democratic Party itself. Well, the Democratic Party is not a monolith. Whoever wins the presidency, if that person is a Democrat, is the head of the Democratic Party. All I can do is speak my heart as someone who has been a Democrat all my life. And when I ran for Congress, I ran as an independent which was a principal position, but I see it was a very naive position at this point. More importantly, I wouldn't do anything. I would never run as an independent in this presidential race. I wouldn't do anything to risk giving even 10 votes to someone who is not the Democratic candidate in 2020. Yeah. I think that the point is not what happens in the Democratic Party so much as what happens in the human race, what happens to our democracy, what happens to our earth. We need to have a much more profound conversation than just the power plays of one particular party, whoever they are. And we're facing an existential threat right now with climate change. Absolutely. Absolutely. As long as the short-term profit maximization of fossil fuel companies and chemical companies are placed before the health of our planet, then climate change is, is taking us on a dangerous trajectory, which, as you said, is an existential crisis for the human race. As long as short-term profit maximization for huge multinational corporate entities is placed before the health and well-being of our, of our children, we have millions of American children, Tom, who go to school every day in buildings that don't even have working toilets. We have millions of American children who go to school every single day in classrooms where there's not enough minimum school supplies to reasonably expect the teacher to be able to teach that child to read. And if a child has not learned how to read by the age of eight, then the chances of high school graduation are drastically diminished and the chances of incarceration are drastically increased. We have what I see as a humanitarian crisis. It should be seen as a humanitarian crisis among millions of American children who live with chronic trauma. But because they don't work, they have no financial leverage. So they, it, it, it's a massive form of collective child abuse. And as long as uh, short-term profit maximization for Boeing and Raytheon and north of Drummond and, and, and Lockheed Martin are placed before a genuine desire to build peace, that will actually sustain us 50 years from now and 100 years from now, giving a $718 billion budget for our defense contractors rather than the kind of money that we really need to build peace, to wage peace, which means expanding economic opportunities for women and expanding educational opportunities for children. We are 
as a human species right now, and unfortunately, some of our most dangerous trajectories are being actually led by behavior of the United States. We are moving in maladaptive ways. The species is collectively displaying behavior that, that is maladaptive for our survival. And every species, if it does this, will either mutate, it will either evolve, or it will go extinct. That's how important this is right now. And the United States should be leading the path for their evolution, higher evolution for the human race. Amen. Well, good luck, Marianne. I, I wish you the very best. Uh, you please thank keep you. us up to date on everything, how it's going. Marianne for America.com is the website. Marianne, thank you. Thank you, Tom. Good talking with you. Tom Harmon here with you and Madison in Portland. Hey, Madison, thanks for watching us or listening to us on X-Ray FM. What's up? Not much. Um, I just really wanted to call in about the uh, bumper sticker thing because we don't have enough time for me to talk about all the ill-fated things that Trump has done or how he got there. Well, it is a long list, isn't it, Madison? <laughs> oh, my Lord. Oh, my Lord. It's, well, you know what? I think it could probably help if the middle class could raise their children better and stuff, you know, and not have to be working both parents full time and whatever. And three but jobs, yeah. Yeah, you know, there's lots of things. But I thought maybe this would be something, a bumper sticker they could understand, is uh, nice red, white, and blue, and say, Trump, Putin, America first. Yeah, as in uh, putting, yeah. Putin. Putin, American first. Okay. I got it, Madison. It's an idea. Right. Madison, thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you. Steve in Milford, New York. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind today? Thanks for listening to SiriusXM. Uh, hello, Tom. Um, I'm just calling in to uh, tell you how much I enjoy your show. And, uh, you're very informative. You're performing a tremendous service to this entire country. You really are. You're, you're uh, comprehensive reporting is very much appreciated and i just want you to know how i feel and i thank you very much for that well thank you steve that's very kind of you i appreciate the call and thank you for your kind words and thanks for listening to us on sirius xm you're listening to tom hartman we all want to find the perfect unicorn gift to give at the holiday gift exchange or to family and friends that'll really stand out right I have one that will be the talk of the office, a hit with friends and family, and will actually be useful. Tiger Lady. Tiger Lady's been featured in Runner's World Gift Guide two years now. You may know Tiger Lady as the revolutionary self-defense tool based on a cat's retractable claws. When you make a fist, three claws come out like a real-life wolverine. It's lightweight and designed to collect DNA. Tiger Lady doesn't require training, and it's legal in all 50 states. It's recommended by police and self-defense instructors, making it the perfect stocking stuffer for anyone on your list. Tiger Lady will make your loved ones feel aware and confident when they walk alone. Order by December 14th for free shipping and time for Christmas. Go to TigerLady.com or use the code CHEER, C-H-E-E-R, for a 25% savings and to receive a free whistle LED flashlight keychain while supplies last. Give the gift of safety this year by giving Tiger Lady. Remember, use the code CHEER, C-H-E-E-R, and go to TigerLady.com. That's TigerLady.com. Right now, Lisa Graves is with us. She's the co-director of Documented Investigations. She's the former chief counsel for nominations for the U.S. Senate uh, Judiciary Committee. Documented.net 
is her website. You can tweet her at the Lisa Graves. And Lisa, welcome back to the program. Tom, it's so nice to be on. Thank you so much for having me. It is always great having you with us, Lisa. You are so on top of the stuff that you're looking into. You're just you're one of the smartest people I know. And you're suggesting that Congress must investigate Brett Kavanaugh's lies before the Senate. I'm, I'm assuming you're talking not specifically about his lies before the Senate in the previous months, but the ones that go back to, what, 2004, 2006? Am I re- remembering right? Yes, that's right, and thank you for that lovely compliment. I really appreciate it. But uh, it's true. What I'm calling for is for Congress to investigate his lies going back to 2004, 2006, and his lies this past September. I mean, I think Congress has to investigate it, especially now that the um, courts have refused to hold him to account for his conduct. Well, and let's set that up. Yesterday, I believe it was yesterday, it might have been the day before, there, there were 83 or 84, as I recall, ethics complaints that have been filed with the D.C. Circuit Court, uh, you know, one step below the Supreme Court, the court on which Brett Kavanaugh used to sit, alleging ethics violations specifically related to this, this you know, uh, uh, to this uh, hearing that he had uh, from disrespecting Congress to outright lies to, you know, sexual assault and other things. And the court yesterday said, sorry, we can no longer investigate Brett Kavanaugh. We can't hold him to account because now he's on, he's our boss, essentially. He's now in the Supreme Court and we can't, that's above our pay grade. Am I characterizing that accurately? That's a, that's a pretty good, pretty good description of it. They punted, they refused to rule on the merits of this, even though the code of conduct for United States judges applies to circuit court judges, which is what Brett Kavanaugh was until he was confirmed. And all of the conduct that, uh, uh, all of the conduct except for the sexual assault, but they were lying about the, that uh, were part of those hearings. And so when he, made, when, he, when he engaged in misconduct, according to many of these complaints, and in my view, he was a sitting circuit court judge, and I think that the courts should have applied the code to him at that time. But the idea that because he's on the Supreme Court, therefore he's above the law, really is evading the responsibility to enforce this code. This code includes key, normal, ordinary standards for judges, which include um, if reasonable people, reasonable minds would conclude that a judge's honesty, integrity, impartiality, or temperament, or fitness to serve are impaired, that's clearly an issue in the conduct uh, displayed by Brett Kavanaugh in the hearings, his testimony under oath, uh, and more. And I think that uh, because the court's have not uh, have not applied this code to him because he's on the Supreme Court. Uh, Congress really has a moral duty to look into this. Yeah, this is this is pretty remarkable. So, how would Congress go about doing this? How should this be done, in your opinion, Lisa Graves? Well, I think the House of Representatives, uh, the new House, has ample authority to uh, examine these matters. Even though the confirmation process in the Constitution is set for the Senate. Um, in the House, the House has the ability to examine uh, matters that pertain to the judiciary, including the U.S. Supreme Court. It has always had that power. It also has, you know, um, inherent investigative powers and impeachment powers. And so I think that the House Judiciary Committee um, should look into this, should um, gather evidence that was not provided to the Senate Judiciary Committee, that was withheld from that committee, uh, and also gather evidence that, that the FBI refused to examine uh, about Brett Kavanaugh's lies under oath. Um, lying to Congress is a serious matter. It should be a serious matter. Lying under oath uh, is certainly a serious matter for a lawyer, certainly for a judge. 
And I think there's ample evidence that Brett Kavanaugh lied, and he's unsuited, unfit for the position he holds on the U.S. Supreme Court. His presence there really calls into question the, the legitimacy of any decision he participates in um, as a Supreme Court justice. You worked for the Senate Judiciary Committee, and we're talking here about the House Judiciary Committee because the Senate Judiciary Committee is under the control of Republicans, so presumably they won't do anything. But the House Judiciary Committee will be headed up by a Republican, by a Democrat, excuse me, and hopefully you can tell me, you remind me who that person is. Have you heard any anything from anybody on the House Judiciary Committee that would suggest that they might be willing to undertake this investigation? Well, the incoming chairman of the House Judiciary Committee is Congressman Jerry Nadler. He of New York. Of right. New York. He's a strong congressperson. He's dealt with a lot of different types of investigations during his career in Congress. And I would hope that he would examine these matters. I know that Congress has a number of matters to take up uh, pertaining to this administration. I'm not suggesting that this be the very first matter on that docket. I think Congress can do more than one thing at a time. Mm-hmm. And it can, it can begin the process of examining this. This is a very serious issue that goes to the heart of the integrity of the judiciary, and that is, in fact, the Committee on the Judiciary. On the Senate side, unfortunately, Senator Grassley poorly led that committee as the chairman this past few years, and now uh, it appears that Lindsey Graham will be the incoming chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and he, obviously, as the public saw, is sort of unhinged in many ways and is, is, is really just a lapdog to President Trump. There's no way he would do the right thing and investigate the lies. In fact, he did everything he could to, to sort of obscure those lies through his own histrionics uh, at that hearing at which Dr. Christine Blasey Ford gave compelling evidence, eyewitness testimony, and Brett Kavanaugh came in in his, in his own hysterical, very partisan, extremely poor temperament way after he'd given a very calm interview with Fox News about those very same matters. And so, hmm. you know, the Republicans really allowed there to be a, a show uh, a real um, a real sort of theatrical production to try to get Brett Kavanaugh through, and they succeeded to get him on the court, but that doesn't mean he des- deserves to be there. In fact, I think he most certainly does not, and Congress should definitely investigate it. A lot of our listeners and viewers like to uh, uh, call members of Congress and suggest to them that they... Uh, that they do certain things. The uh, number for the congressional switchboard is 202-225-3121, 202-225-3121, or 224-3121. They both go to the congressional switchboard. Is there or are there other members of the House Judiciary Committee who you think might be receptive to a message from their constituents or even from people across the country, since the Judiciary Committee arguably represents all of us? in basically citizen lobbying of them to investigate Brett Kavanaugh? Well, I think, and I've thought this for a long time, that it's important for members uh, of both parties to be hearing from constituents, even if you feel like they're not listening to you or that they're acting in ways that they don't represent you. So I would say to call every single member on that committee, Republican or Democratic, and say, you know, our court should be above this sort of partisanship, but also it should be, they should be above having people put into... Um, high positions, lifetime positions, who have lied under oath. And I think there's ample evidence for that. Um, and so I would, I would say, I wouldn't single out call a single all. member. Call them so, all. Because uh, all uh, need to hear this is not okay. Lisa Graves, the co-director of Documented Investigations. Documented.net is the website. You can tweet her at the Lisa Graves, former chief counsel for nominations for the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee. Lisa, thanks so much for dropping by today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Tom. Thank and you. Keep up the great work. You are you Thank are you. you are such a champion for democracy in the United States. Lisa Thank Graves. You. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. 
uh, members of the House Judiciary Committee on the Republican side. I'm just going to go through this list real quick. So listen up. If you recognize any of these names, if they represent you, the number for Congress, write it down, 202-225-3121. Bob Goodlatte, Jim Sensenbrenner, Lamar Smith, Steve Chabot, Daryl Issa, Steve King, Louis Gohmert, Jim Jordan, Ted Poe, Tom Marino, Trey Gowdy, Raul Labrador, Doug Collins, Ron DeSantis, Ken Buck, John Ratcliffe, Martha Roby, Matt Getz, Mike Johnson, Andy Biggs, John Rutherford, Karen Handel, and Keith Rothfuss. Those are the Republicans. Here are the Democrats. Jerry Nadler, he's going to be the uh, incoming chair in January. Zoe Lofgren, Sheila Jackson Lee, Steve Cohen, Hank Johnson, Ted Deutsch, Luis Gutierrez, Karen Bass, Cedric Richmond, Hakeem Jeffries, David Sicilian, Sicilian uh, Eric Swalwell, Ted Liu, Jamie Raskin, Pramila Jayapal, Brad Schneider, and Val Demings. So if any of those people represent you, you may want to get in touch with them. This is so pathetic, as, as Walter Einenkohl, I'm sure I mispronounced that. He's a staff writer for the Daily Kos. Let me warn you, trigger warning, trigger warning here. Anybody who has lost a loved one to the global war on Christmas, I'm going to talk about that very thing. So if you've lost a loved one to the global war on Christmas, turn away or mute your TV. Here it is, the uh, racist, homophobic, transphobic, xenophobic, intellectually dishonest Tucker Carlson last night declared the war on Christmas is going full tilt boogie. His, my words, not his. Here are his words. He says, of course it's going on and it's being fought very fiercely here in America. That's the war on Christmas. But not just in America. The war on Christmas is a global struggle. In the Parliament of Scotland, they have a national parliament. Gee, I didn't know that. Really? Scotland has a parliament? Holy cow. Anyhow, in the Parliament of Scotland, they have a national parliament, the coffee shop has stopped selling gingerbread men. Why? Gender specific. They're now called gingerbread people. Oh, the horror. I, I don't know how we're going to deal with this. He then brings on Tammy Bruce, this uh, right-wing radio personality who, uh, when President Obama and his wife Michelle first took office, said that they were trash. Seriously, Tammy Bruce called Obama and his wife trash as they were taking office. Presumably because they're black. I don't know. You know, I can't think of any. The guy is a law school graduate, constitutional law professor. A United States senator, a former Illinois state senator, he has a, an impeccable and spotless record. But, you know, yeah, his wife are black, so Tammy Bruce thinks they're trash, right? Must be. I, I don't know why else she would say that. Anyhow, that, so Tucker Carlson brings her on and says, hey, let's talk about the war on Christmas. Yes, those gingerbread people. Oh, my God. How can we, how can we deal with this? Have you lost someone to the global war on Christmas? If you have, I'm so sorry. And I hope I haven't, you know, flipped you out or upset you with this story. You know, Tucker Carlson actually should have started his segment on Fox so-called news. Murdoch's billionaire network is really what we should call it, because they program things that, you know, are pro-billionaire all the time. It's just that simple. And of course, Murdoch owns it. He's a billionaire. The guy that former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd in the Sydney Morning News called a cancer on Australian democracy. Uh, Murdoch owns more than half of the press in Australia. 
And Kevin Rudd went on to say he thought that Murdoch was a cancer on British and American democracy as well. Uh, that network running the war on Christmas, you know, it worked for a while. You got the you got the dupes on Fox News going, oh, the horror, the war on Christmas. They hate Christianity. They don't like Jesus. Who would Jesus deport? What size gun would Jesus carry? Hey, we have a whole bunch of special content just for our Patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash Tom Hartman, uh, T-H-O-M, Hartman with two N's. It includes uh, you know, the entire three hours of our program every day. The whole, the, the entire program is available there that you can watch on, on uh, basically uh, non-public YouTube uh, links. And also, we regularly put up new rants. The one I just did is about the Supreme Court. It's based in part on my book, Unequal Protection, and based in part on a book I'm writing, I'm working on right now in the Supreme Court, and in part just, you know, what what I know and you need to know about how the Supreme Court got as badly corrupted as it is. How did we get here, right? I mean, how did we end up with with a bunch of crazy right-wingers on the court? And what can we do about it? There actually are ways that we can address this problem of the corruption of the Supreme Court. So check it out, patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do. Ellen Rentner's new book on the line with us is the author of Sideswiped, former Republican congressman from Ohio, Bob Nay. Bob, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you, Tom. Pleasure to be here. So uh, what's going on in the world that we need to know about? Well, of course, we all know about Syria and the Mm. surprise announcement, but I wanted to go to immigration. It's kind of immigration day, and a couple of the stories, well, one isn't buried, but one may be buried about money that we're giving to Mexico. If if we're looking around the whole issue of immigration, first of all, you know, there's the California judge, uh, Judge Teeger, who made a ruling that, and it was temporary originally, the ruling, now he's made a decisive permanent ruling on it, that the Trump administration cannot say and institute a ban, whereas someone comes into the United States, and then they say, well, you're illegal, and now you can't apply for asylum, which is what they were doing. So that that was ruled. Now, what's interesting, though, uh, and, and, you know, they'll probably appeal, of course, on top of this, you've got, we know, the stopgap spending measure. Trump's angry at the Republicans. He wants the wall, you know, all gearing towards immigration. Well, at the same time, the Trump administration is announcing uh, over all, almost uh, 9 to $10 billion that they're going to give to Mexico and Central America to be used to basically attempt to keep people in those countries versus coming here. So they're announcing Wouldn't it be better to give nine or ten billion dollars to building democracy in Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador? Well, sure. I mean, it would be better because if you look at if we look at this and the verbiage on it, we we don't know much right now. By airtime, I tried to find out more. We don't know much, but it's just that it's going to be used to assist uh, people so that they won't. Now they don't say it exactly this way, but so they won't migrate to the United States. But right. clearly intended for that purpose. That's how they're going to use it. Bob, can we talk about Syria for a minute? Oh, sure. You you lived in Iran. You speak Farsi, the the language of Iran. Iran is aligned with Bashar al-Assad in Syria. Iran doesn't like the Kurds any more than Turkey or Syria or Iraq. 
these are the four countries where you've, you know, the, the fragments of old Kurdistan live. It seems to me that my theory of Donald Trump's immediately pulling out of Syria is that we know that he talked to Erdogan a couple days ago, and that Erdogan said to him, okay, you couldn't give me my shake, but if you want me to shut up about Saudi Arabia so that your son-in-law, Jared Kushner, can get his billion dollars out of the Saudis and the Emiratis, I will do that if you will let me slaughter the Kurds in northern Syria. A, do you think I'm wrong? You know that region. And B, what should we be doing? Well, you, you have a fascinating theory because let's look at a fact. Right now, as you know, they probably have smelling salts under John Bolton's nose, the National Security Advisor. Oh, and well, he wants to have a full-out nuclear war in Syria, well, take Assad right, out, right. blow up the Russian Syria. submarine base, right. the whole thing, you know, right. or the Navy base. Go over to Iran, hit Russia, right. you know, go, go get everybody. In fact, maybe hit, hit Canada just in case they misbehave in 100 years. So right. that's the Bolton theory. So you got Bolton, you have the general, Mad Dog Mattis, and you have the Secretary of State all in line with not doing this, what the president's doing. A decision of this nature, because we know he didn't sit down and, and, you know, he got advice, but he didn't seek advice before he made this decision. As far as we can tell, he, the only person he consulted was the president of Turkey. Correct. That's right. And he announced it on, on a tweet. So it's not just all of a sudden he woke up and said, I think I'll pull our troops out of Syria today. Now, he's saying that he's you know, a long-time person that uh, doesn't want involvement, but yet he did go full force against ISIS, you know, in Syria itself. Let's face that. He shifted some troops also from, from Iraq, we know, into, mm. into Afghanistan. So he has done things like that. But on this one, it's bewildering, because I think your theory has a lot of merit. Uh, it, it was a deal cut with Turkey. His son-in-law is so close to Mohammed bin Salman that he's giving uh, Jared Kushner... The president's son-in-law is giving the president the worst particular advice anyone could give. I still think it's business-related. Yep. I think it's looking down the road at business. Yep. There is no rhyme or... Now, I'm not saying that, that the president's move to uh, get troops out of Syria is, is a bad move, in a sense, okay? Mm -hmm. You know, we, we've, we've lost uh, some ground over there. But I will tell you this. For the president to enable Iran, which is what this will do, this will make Iran more powerful, in order to do that... Something had to have happened because yeah. this is against all the advice. So I, well, I, you know, I, you know I'm, I, I'm all in favor of pulling our troops out of Syria if we do it in a right. way that doesn't compromise the, the security of the, of the Kurds, which I think could be done simply by politically threatening Erdogan. You know, we will we will take you out of NATO. We will take you out of the EU. We will we will cut off trade with you. We will punish mm -hmm. you if you mm -hmm. if you commit genocide against the, the Kurds in, mm -hmm. in northern Syria, because, you know, he sees I mean, he's he has already officially labeled them as terrorists. Sure. And, uh, you know, against his own country. He said there's terrorists on my southern border. He wants to take them out. He's, he's, he's said so. So it seems to me, Bob, that we have a foreign policy. We know now that Trump's foreign policy with regard to Russia was driven by his economic interests, his, his uh, you know, this deal memo that he wrote to build a hotel in Moscow. I'm asserting, and, and I have seen nothing to contradict, that his foreign policy with regard to Syria is similarly economically driven in the interests of the Trump crime family. It has to be something to that effect because it's sad what we're doing to the Kurds. They have stood by us. They have fought. They've fought terrorism. You know, I mean, well, look, the president, as you know, was willing to send back the cleric into Turkey, right? right? Until, it, until it blew that. up in the press. Right. And then and he could up in the press. And so now this might be a maneuver because, oh, he can get away with saying, oh, you know, I decided I didn't want to have troops there. But again, 
the, the thing that makes me believe that your theory has merit and makes me believe there's something there is, again, you just don't wake up and announce this kind of move without at least communicating with your top people. And, and he did. Right. And again, I'm very suspicious of the connection, business connection of the son-in-law. You know, that's, I think this is going to be their Achilles heel. Yeah. To be honest with you. Yeah, I think it's going to be what takes them down. I is, think it is. is greed. Just pure, pure, Achilles unadulterated greed. Business. Yep. Bob Nay, author of Sideswipe. Bob, thanks a lot for dropping by today. Thank you, Tom. Great talking with you. As always, happy holidays. You're listening to Tom Hartman. As you probably know, Louise and I are basically vegans who eat fish once a month, but odds are you're not. Omaha Steaks has a really great product for the holidays for, th for those of you who eat meat. This is the gift that families across America have loved for over 100 years. Right now, Omaha Steaks has an amazing limited time offer for my listeners. When you go to omahasteaks.com, enter the code REPORT and you'll get 74% off Omaha Steaks family gift package. Originally $195, now just $49.99. Order now and you'll get four hand-cut tender top sirloin steaks, two savory premium pork chops, four chicken fried steaks, four Omaha steak burgers, four kielbasa sausages, all beef meatballs, four potatoes au gratin, four caramel apple tartlets, plus four more burgers for free. Omaha Steaks is a fifth generation family owned company with over a hundred years of experience delivering perfectly aged beef hand cut by master butchers in Omaha. This offer ends soon. Go to omahasteaks.com, enter the code REPORT, R-E-P-O-R-T, REPORT in the search bar and get 74% off Omaha Steaks family gift package. That's omahasteaks.com, code REPORT. Hartman University Book Club today. We're reading from It's Even Worse Than You Think, What the Trump Administration is Doing to America by David K. Johnston. This is from page 61, the chapter titled Forgetting the Forgotten Man. In 2010, the U.S. Department of Labor created a website to honor workers who died on the job. Quote, more than 45,000 workers, 4,500 workers, excuse me, lose their job uh, lives on the job every year. Below are the names of just a few who have died in recent months. OSHA's mission is to prevent workplace injuries, illnesses, and death, end quote. That Occupational Safety and Health Administration webpage was intended to highlight and humanize workplace deaths, to ensure awareness of tragedies, especially those that could have been avoided, according to Jordan Barab, an assistant secretary of labor during the Obama administration. Barab explained, without information like this, fatality statistics are just raw, sterile numbers. The purpose of adding names and circumstances was to impress people with the tragedy that workers and their families face day after day. In August 2017, Trump's Labor Department quietly removed the preamble and the names when it killed the web page. It also took down, without public announcement, the fatality inspection data for all years prior to 2017. Those are just two of many other Trump administration actions inimical to worker safety. Others included no longer posting press releases about deaths resulting from unsafe work, working conditions, delaying rules to reduce sickness and death from inhaling silica and beryllium at work, delaying rules to lower the risk of railroad engineers and truck drivers falling asleep at the switch or wheel because of untreated sleep apnea, and the appointment of a, to the Supreme Court of a judge who held that a company had the right to fire a worker who chose not to freeze to death on the job. A reasonable person listening to Donald Trump's inaugural address would never have expected these and other actions, assuming he believed what Trump said. 
Trump declared, the forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no more. You came by the tens of millions to become part of a historic mo movement, the likes of which the world has never seen before. At the center of this movement is a crucial conviction that a nation exists to serve its citizens, end quote. Those men and women were forgotten again the following week. And it's not just workers whose interests were forgotten, not to mention who were put in danger. By deciding not to implement a rule to reduce the chances of truck drivers and train operators falling asleep at the wheel, Trump put at risk the lives of families driving along the highway, people riding on passenger trains, and many others. The White House called it President Trump's war on regulation. In his weekly radio address in early May, he declared that we've removed one job-killing regulation after another, and they're not pretty, and they're going. Uh, and believe me, we're just getting started on regulations. They're gone. Removal of data on workplace deaths, which averaged 13 per day, infuriated Jordan Barab, who was Barab, who is Obama's number two at OSHA. As a private citizen, Barab created a web page to keep track of the names of the dead and the reasons they were killed on the job. He called it, OSHA won't tell you who died in the workplace, we will. After the election, Barab's concerns that the Trump administration would be bad for workers increased when he asked where the Trump beachhead team was and learned that none was coming. Each incoming administrator, administrator sends people to scope out federal agencies, learn who does what, and get a feel for the place in advance. Then the incoming administration sends its landing team, the people who will initially implement its policies, for each agenda. Ready to agency. When no beachhead team came up, Barab figured it meant worker safety simply was not a priority for Trump. He hoped that was the worst of it, nothing more than apathy about worker safety. But when the landing team arrived, Barab real, realized trouble was coming for American workers. And it was not official apathy, but the start of assaults on workers' rights and safety. Barab said most of them had no idea they were going to labor and no interest in workers' issues either. What they did have was a mandate to delay, repeal, or weaken regulations that protected workers as part of Trump's plan to eliminate, quote, any regulation that is outdated, unnecessary, bad for workers, or contrary to the national interest, end quote. The first sign came when Trump nominated Judge Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court. Gorsuch was an acolyte of Antonin Scalia, whose seat he would be taking. Like Scalia, he said statutes should be liter literally read, and if that made no sense, well, that was a problem for Congress. Also like Scalia, he had a habit of consulting dictionaries, often following Scalia's practice of relying on the third, fourth, or even lesser definition of a word when it supported his jurisprudence. Trump's nomination alarmed unions. Jody Calamine, a, com a communications worker of America lawyer, told Gorsuch's Senate confirmation hearing that Gorsuch, quote, is a threat to working people's health and safety, end quote. Calamine uh, cited Gorsuch's dissent in the 2016 case to make this, his point. That dissent, he said, right, reveals an anti-worker bias and features a judicial activism that will ultimately put workers' lives at risk, end quote. Those are unusually strong words about a Supreme Court nominee, but a review of the case shows Gorsuch has little regard for human life, at least when it comes to employers' power over their workers. He considers a rigid interpretation of the law more important. The case was about a law Congress passed giving workers the right to refuse dangerous tasks. Gorsuch said, no, you may not refuse. It's Even Worse Than You Think by David K. Johnston.
on the line with us is one of my senators, and also, even if he wasn't one of my senators, one of the finest men in the United States Senate, Senator Jeff Merkley, represented from Oregon. Merkley.senate.gov is the website. You can tweet him at SenJeffMerkley, as in Senator. Senator, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much, Tom. Good to be with you. It is always great having you. Okay, the headline up at Huffington Post, the Trump administration is holding thousands of migrant kids in mass shelters. The federal government has placed most of the 14,300 migrant toddlers, children, and teens in its care in detention centers and residential facilities packed with hundreds or thousands of children. A, tell us what you learned when you went down to the southern border, and B, how is this happening in the United States of America? I'll tell you, the numbers are going up almost every single day. Back in June, it was 9,000 children. Now it's, uh, we're told it's hitting 15,000. So every few days, the number's up. This is a series of child prisons here in the United States of America that one would be, anyone would be appalled to find out about. So I hope, I'm glad people are hearing about it. We went down, I took a congressional delegation down to Tornillo, this child prison that was set up uh, in June, uh, supposed to be for one month for a couple hundred kids. It's now still there and expanded to 2,700 children, and they've just increased the capacity to take another 1,100 children, up to, in other words, up to 3,800. This is inflicting trauma on these kids being locked up, never knowing when they're going to get out. Many of them, more than 2,000 of them, have been in over 20 days, which is supposed to be the maximum under the Flores Settlement Agreement that was to protect children from additional harm from incarceration. And it's not being followed there. I understand also that this is from NBC reporting some weeks ago, that the reason that they set this up in the desert there as a, quote, temporary facility was to get around Texas state laws, which echo the state laws of pretty much every other state, that children in detention actually have certain rights, including, you know, the right to access to a social worker, the right to education, things like that. And also that the people running the facility would have to screen the employees to make sure that they are not you know, violently or sexually abusive toward children, and none of that is happening down there. Do I have that right? Well, pretty much. By being on federal land, they bypass the state laws, and by calling it a temporary facility, they believe they can bypass, and are certainly doing so in practice, the Flores Consent Agreement. They are, they told us at least, that they are using standard commercial review for the background checks on the employees, but they are not doing the FBI background check, which takes much, much longer. Yeah. This is absolutely breathtaking that our country is imprisoning these little children. And Jeff Sessions, he's no longer our attorney general, but it echoes on, and Stephen Miller and the chief of staff, John Kelly, all at various times have said that we are intentionally inflicting, now I'm paraphrasing obviously, we are intentionally inflicting this pain on these children to cause parents of other children who are south of the border not to want to come here so that their children will not be exposed to this kind of pain. Do I have that right? You have that absolutely right, and that's why this is coming from such a evil and dark place in the heart of this administration, deliberately inflicting trauma on children, deliberately hurting children to send a political message, not justifiable under any religious tradition, any moral code. And get this, of those kids who are there, we were told that 1,300 of the 2,700 
already have sponsors, and those sponsors have gone through the complete bureaucratic measures, including fingerprints, in order to have the kids come to them. But because the Trump administration hasn't completed the paperwork, they just have been trapped there in that child prison. The director said that if he, if the administration would complete the paperwork within five to seven days, he could have 1,300 children with homes and schools and parks rather than locked up behind barbed wire. Yeah, I think the phrase I saw in the Washington Post was that they're slow walking it. Yes, and so now, today, and actually not today, they announced it yesterday, so we held a press conference. Let me back up. We held a press conference. We demanded Tornillo be closed on Saturday just outside the gates with the barbed wire in the background. We demanded an end to this slow walking of the background checks and paper processing for sponsors, get those kids into homes. And yesterday, the administration did respond and said they are changing their policy, that they think several thousand kids will be released here in the next couple days and that they are considering shutting down Tornillo. And so let's keep pressing, because it isn't just Tornillo. There's also Homestead Child Prison in Florida, and then the additional thousands of children at smaller facilities all around the U.S., total of 15,000 now. So what can the people watching or listening to this program right now do? I mean, is, this, is it time to call 202-225-3121, the, the congressional switchboard, and ask for their senators or their representatives and, and say something uh, that you might advise us to say? Or is there, is there something else that we can do to push back on this administration's brutal policies? I think one of the most important things is to circulate this information among your, your social media connections, friends, and family, that there are 15,000 children in child prisons and that that's no way for America to treat children as they wait asylum here. And just for people to know. Second of all, when Congress comes back in, because we're basically out now until the 3rd of January, do contact and push. I have a no internments camp in America bill. I have another bill that I'll reintroduce that says uh, Congress can get into these facilities within 24 hours because you have to be able to see them as they are, not as a Potemkin village after they've been spruced up for two weeks. And another thing is we need to be able to actually talk to the children to see what they're going through. We were not able. Five members of Congress were there three senators, two House members, we could not talk to the children to find out anything about the downsides of what they were experiencing. We were getting the, you know, everything's nice and wonderful here version of life. And the other thing is, is that when we were at the Dilly family internment camp, there was a mother and a child who had been locked up there for almost six months, who fled gang persecution in Honduras. The daughter was attacked. They fled the next day. And the daughter's birthday was Tuesday, turning 15, quinceanera, a very important day in the life of a young uh, Latin American woman. And if you want to send her a birthday card, anyone out there in your listening audience, if you send it to the Dilly Pro Bono Project. You can find that on the web. They will get that card to her and let her know that she is not forgotten. How is Dilly spelled? D-I-L-L-E-Y. E-Y. Okay, thank you. Boy, Senator Jeff Merkley, you are doing some really, really great work. Last question before you go. When the Democrats take control of the House of Representatives, you said that you couldn't talk to these kids. I also read in one of the stories that you wanted to talk, or maybe it wasn't you, maybe it was another member of your delegation, wanted to talk to the Border Patrol or, or ICE or whoever, the, I think it was the Border Patrol officers, who had taken custody of this little seven-year-old girl who died from dehydration last week, and the Trump administration refused you access to them. When the Democrats can take control 
control of the House of Representatives, and I realize you're in the Senate, but will they be able to subpoena these people and force them to come and testify before Congress in an open session? I believe that they will be able to. I don't know the exact rules of the House on which committees have that power, mm-hmm. but certainly I hope the House passes a bill that gives us access and oversight. And we do have the power, if the administration doesn't respond, to cut off money to the administration until such access is granted. And so that's another way we can go about it. Powerful stuff. Senator Jeff Merkley. Senator, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Tom. It's great talking with you. It's always great talking with you. One of the really good guys, Senator Jeff Merkley. You can tweet him at Sen, as in Senator, S-E-N, Jeff Merkley. And of course, uh, his website, merkley.senate.gov. Amazing. You spend every day in your office chair. That's over 2,000 hours a year. So if you're spending all that time in the wrong chair, is it any wonder why you're sore and tired at the end of the day? Ditch that no-name, one-size-fits-all superstore chair and trade up to the X chair. When you feel the X chair difference, you'll understand. My X chair is the most stylish chair I've ever owned. Trust me, this is not your grandfather's office chair. Switching to the X chair, I'm more productive and have more energy. I love my X chair and you will too. X chair is now on sale for the holidays, so buy one for yourself and one for someone you love. X chair is now on sale for $100 off. So call 844-4X-CHAIR or go to xchairtom.com, that's xchairtom.com now to save 100 bucks. And here's a special deal just for my listeners. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and they'll even throw in a free footrest. Go to xchairtom or call 844-4X-CHAIR and use the code TOM for a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com, 844-4X-CHAIR. Tom Harbin here with you. So George Conway, the husband of Kellyanne Conway, retweeted a, a headline from Slate, you know, the online magazine, tweeted, Trump's administration is actually very weak. And Conway responded to that saying, exactly right. And then he quoted from the article, the Slate article, quote, the extent to which Republicans are distancing themselves from the White House is a poor sign for a future where even more of the administration is under investigation. The signs of collapse are here. The question is, what pushes everything over the brink? Now, by collapse, they're talking about the collapse of the Trump administration. The progressive and increasing indictments of the individuals in the Trump administration, the possible indictment of the president himself, things are coming unraveled. This morning, Donald Trump apparently decided that he really didn't want the news media to be talking about this horrible mistake that he made by tweeting yesterday that he's going to pull all our troops out of Syria immediately with no transition, no handing off of power, no protection for the Kurds. Uh, You know, France is there. France says we're going to stay. I mean, it's not just the United States and Syria. But he didn't even notify France. He hasn't notified our allies. He didn't notify Congress. He didn't notify the Pentagon. This was a just a colossal mistake on the part of the on the part of the president. And I think, frankly, he did that. He said, oh, we're going to pull out of Syria. We won against ISIS, which we didn't. I mean, it was a lie, right? It's Trump. I personally think that he did this because he wanted to move the conversation away from the national conversation, away from Robert Mueller and the indictments that Mueller is handing down, his, his own lawyer, his own campaign manager, his former national security advisor, Mike Flynn, you know, Michael Cohen, Paul Manafort, these guys, I mean, the picture that's being painted by Robert Mueller, one brushstroke at a time, one indictment at a time, 
That picture is very clearly the picture of a criminal enterprise operating inside the Republican Party with the collaboration of foreign governments, including Russia, Israel, and Saudi Arabia, and possibly others, to basically you know, hijack the presidency on the behalf of Donald Trump. A successful criminal conspiracy. And as that gets more and more press, Trump is like, oh, you know, well, let's change the subject. Let's, let's pull out of Syria. And then that blows back in his face. And so he's like, this morning he wakes up and he goes, okay, we got to change the subject again. You know that border wall? I am going to shut down the government to get my damn border wall. And guess what? That's what the media is talking about right now. I mean, Trump, he, he just, you know, he looks out at the media in America and says, okay, quirk. we're just going to change the topic. So what do you think is going to be the thing that pushes Trump over the edge? I mean, you know, a rat is generally not dangerous until it's cornered. I would say that that's broadly, I mean, Trump is extremely destructive to the United States. His policy is extremely destructive. But those are, by and large, simply, you know, classic Republican owned by the fossil fuel billionaires tactics and procedures, processes. But what might Trump do if Robert Mueller releases actual proof that Trump has engaged in high crimes and misdemeanors, impeachable offenses. How is he going to distract us from that? Uh, the Justice Department just came out, by the way, and said that Matt Whitaker, the new acting attorney general who has not been confirmed by the Senate, uh, so he, he should not be there. This is illegal. This is one of the things they impeached Andrew Johnson for, was putting a guy in as attorney general who had not been confirmed by the Senate. Only other time it's been done in history. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Yeah, what the DOJ said is that Matt Whitaker doesn't need to recuse himself from the Mueller investigation. He can start messing with it. Get ready for a real fireworks display. John in Jeffersonville, Ohio. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Yeah, I'd just like to offer a little bit of hope because I was thinking the other day if if you had if someone asked you to build a building with imperfect material, you'd kind of scratch your head. And our founders of this country had to put together a government with imperfect people because we are not perfect people. There's you know, greed and there's all kinds of dishonesty and all these things. And even with the stress test of this administration, it looks like our democratic institutions are holding. Some have bent, some have broken, but overall it seems like it, it, they're holding. And also they gave us an instrument to use to take back that power and reverse the damage. And other governments in, 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 in history did not have that. They had to do it through blood and, and, and war and, and, you know, horrific things. So we have the instrument you know, of impeachment I mean, or of elections or both? Yeah, exactly. And, and so I'm just happy about that. Yeah. Yeah, me too, John. And, and I actually am hopeful about the future as much as I am uh, just, you know, screwed up in agony over the present. And, you know, here we got George Conway saying that this administration is collapsing. You know, rats are dangerous when you corner them. What's Trump going to do next? John, thank you for the call. Uh, actually, two stories that I wanted to share with. The first is 
Robert Spencer. Robert Spencer was arrested in July of last year by Garfield Heights police officers uh, Kenneth Falzini and David Simia. And what he was arrested for was, uh, and prosecuted for, was laughing while black. The police patrol car approached this guy. He was not doing anything wrong. Started harassing him. He called them Beavis and Butthead and laughed at them. And so they arrested him. And had his girlfriend not been shooting the whole thing on video, he'd probably be in, in jail right now for resisting arrest and, and you know whatever other claims that these two police officers, Falzini and Simia, could come up with. So uh, they, they handcuffed him and they threw him in the patrol car. They swore at him. When he got to jail, he was there for three days before posting bond, and a corrections officer forced him to clean his cell and others under threat of pepper spray. So here he is, you know, this 30-year-old guy cleaning toilets in the jail because he talked back to a cop. The other thing that I was going to share with you is uh, Dr. Paul Ryan, fiscal scientist. This is from Tom the Dancing Bug. Uh, it's a cartoon. I saw this over at Daily Co's. Reuben Bowling is the cartoonist. And it's Paul Ryan, and Paul says, Hi, kids, I'm known as a wonk, so today we're going to run a real science experiment with junior scientist Emily here. And little Emily says, Ready, Dr. Ryan? And Ryan says, It's my hypothesis that tax cuts for the rich grow the economy and create a budget surplus. And so she says, Let's test it using science. So he has this beaker, and he, pours, and he puts into it what looks like the state of Kansas, this little cardboard thing that's shaped like Kansas. And he said, here's a state called Kansas. We'll douse it with tax cuts for the rich and see what happens. And she says, um, uh, Dr. Ryan, it's doing terribly. And he says, sorry, Emily, I couldn't hear you because I'm getting ready for the next experiment. Keep up. This is California. It's in bad shape. Let's douse it with tax increases for the rich and see how much worse it gets. And she says, gosh, Dr. Ryan, California is doing great. And he says, Emily, you're getting bogged down by details. He says, now, nah, and so then he gets this giant beaker and he puts the, you know, a, a cardboard cut out of the entire United States in it. And he says, now that we've rigorously proven my hypothesis, let's douse the whole USA in tax cuts for the rich and watch a budget surplus grow. And she's like, hey, I live there. And she says, oh, no, Dr. Ryan, the budget's starting to bust. Hey, where are you going? And uh, Paul Ryan is taking his lab coat off and he says, I'm retiring as a hero of fiscal science. And uh, I mean, this is just hysterical. And Reuben Bowling at the end says, next, getting paid by the rich for doing such awesome science. This is really actually true. When Sam Brownback, as governor of Kansas, instituted massive tax cuts and said right out loud, I'm going to experiment with Reaganomics and prove that trickle-down economics works. And it devastated Kansas. And then California, when Jerry Brown came in as governor, actually raised taxes on the rich. And California's economy boomed. And then, you know, Donald Trump comes along and repeats what George W. Bush did. Giant tax cut for the whole country, for the billionaires in the whole country. And guess what? The economy goes in the crab room. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy is something that actually, you know, only works with the polis. That's you and me. That's the, the public. We have to get involved. So get out there, get active. Tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 